good morning. Hey, uh, a few years ago, when I was teaching a high school, our high school ministry. Um, I, I made this, um, and the question is, what is it? Um, I'm not good at art at any, by any means. Not an artist, never will be. Um, but I, I, I had some clay, and so I formed this in front of them, and I started, you know, just working the, the clay, forming it, and then I stopped at where I'm at right now, um, and I asked the question to our high schoolers, hey, what is this? And with a pretty confident answer back to me was, it's a bowl. And I said, all right, all right. And then I asked back, like, what if I said it's not a bowl? What if I said it's a vase? And the reaction in the room was, okay, they're good with it. And I'm like, why are you okay with that? Why are you good with it? And the answer back is, because you made it. We watched you make it, and so you made it. You get to tell us what it is. Same way with creation, right? God is the designer. He is the author. He is the creator. And because God is the creator and he is the designer, he gets to be the definer. And as he defines, we've been going through this series, we've we've talked about what God has defined a man as, what God has defined a woman as, and today we're looking at what does God define a marriage to be. And as we look at this, we get to look all the way in the very beginning in Genesis 2, right after God has created Adam, and right after he's created Eve, God creates, starts to invent or begin invents marriage in Genesis chapter 2 and because he invents it he has this patent over marriage and it says this in Genesis 2 24 for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh God is the the designer as the creator over marriage He gets to to be the definer. He gets the idea and says, hey, this is what marriage is. And in Genesis 2.24, he says, marriage is between one man and between one woman. And And it doesn't matter what culture might think or their opinion of marriage. It doesn't matter. They think love is just love and you can love whoever you want. And, and your identity kind of plays into who you might love. Because the designer has designed it in a specific way. And so when, when the culture says you can, a man can love another man, or, or a woman can love another woman, or a man could even love another woman and another woman on top of that, or a man could love another man and another woman, and they're just bisexual, they, it doesn't matter what culture says. It matters what the creator, the designer says. And as he created, he created it to be marriage between one man and one woman. That's his idea. That's the design. It's also part of his design for marriage is that it's lasting, which is another part of where we're, we've kind of messed this up in our culture. All right? 
Like the divorce rate in our country is over 50%. And part of the God's plan from all the way in the beginning is that it was lasting, that God's plan for marriage is that it would be a covenant, it would be a promise, it would be a vow. See, Jesus is asked about marriage in Matthew 19. In fact, asked about divorce when some religious guys come up to Jesus and ask. It says this in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Which sounds probably pretty close to what it feels like today. And he answered, Jesus answers back to them and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no one separate. It's one of my favorite ways to end a wedding with that verse. Hey, what God has joined together today during this ceremony, let no one separate that. And so for the first time, it's my privilege to introduce you to this happy couple Because the idea of marriage is that it was lasting. It's a vow. It's a promise. Jesus quotes all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 2 to help these religious guys understand it wasn't, it's not about culture and what culture says. It's about, hey, this is what the designer has created to, created it to be. It, marriage, the idea, because God designed it, it transcends culture. It's truth. He gets to be the definer of it, and he's saying it's, it's lasting, it's this covenant, it's this vow. So when you're standing in front of your family and friends, or when you stood in front of your family and friends, and you're declaring your love to your spouse, what you're saying, and when you're saying those lines, and and the good times and the bad and sickness and health, richer or poor, as long as we both shall live. You're making this vow, a promise, covenant between you two where you're now two individuals, where you're becoming one. And as, as that happens, it's not just a promise that you're making between each other, it's also a promise that you're declaring to God. Which is why maybe you're in the room, you're single, and this message really isn't fully for you yet, but here's something for you. It is so important of who you will marry because that someday you're gonna stand in front of all your family and friends and you're gonna take on a vow, a covenant with someone else. And so that's why the Bible says, hey, don't be unequally yoked. And so if you love Jesus, don't marry someone who doesn't also love Jesus. 
It's God's plan. His idea for marriage is that you are equally yoked. You're both running the same course. You're running. You're Like the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith. So you and your spouse, you would be joining with your spouse and you would be both fixing your eyes on Jesus, running towards him. It's his plan that it is a covenant. But the way our culture treats marriage is it's a contract. It's love is just this feeling, this emotion. And the reason we got married maybe is because we felt love. We felt butterflies every time we were around her. But love isn't just a feeling, right? That's why I say to the high schools all the time, because you feel like you're in love right now. Or it's, you hear middle schoolers, they're like, I'm in love. And you're like, no way you are in love. You have no idea what love is. And they're like, it's because they treat it as just this feeling, this emotion. And the, the, the bad part about that, love has that a part of it, but it isn't just that, right? Because at some point, you're going to no longer feel like you're in love. You're going to wake up, and you're going to smell her morning breath. And, and you, it's like, no way. But there is... You're, you, that's just the way we treat it, though. We, we might not say it in those words, but we treat marriage in our culture, in our country specifically, as a contract. I can get out at any point in time. If I read the fine print, I can leave. And Jesus is answering. He's going, hey, my intention from the very beginning is that there was when these uh, man and a woman is being joined together and they're declaring their love, they're making this vow, they're making this covenant on their wedding day, it is supposed to be a lifetime. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And the Pharisees, they're sitting there and they're not really loving this conversation where it is. And so they push the conversation a little further and they say to him, Back to Jesus. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They think they got Jesus. And Jesus responds back to them. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery again they're they're going they think they got Jesus but you remember Jesus just quoted Genesis 2 and Genesis 2 that was before the fall the fall is in Genesis 3 and so Jesus is going hey in the beginning it wasn't that way because it was created to be lasting my design for marriage was was a covenant it was lifetime it was lasting And that's still the plan. But okay, because of your hardness of heart, because of the fall, because of sin, there's a permission. It's not you have to. It is a permission to. For, Jesus goes, for immorality. There's a permission you can... Take that step, you don't have to, because of unfaithfulness, because of sin, because of the hardness of our heart, 
there's a permission, but it isn't you have to do this. It is a, an allowance saying, okay, for everything else except for unfaithfulness. Jesus is going, this is the standard I'm, I'm laying down. Here's the design. Again, our culture just goes, okay. They treat it like a contract. And then they treat marriage not even like we don't even have to do it anymore. We don't even have to make the covenant. We'll just pretend to be married, right? Like we just cohabitate before getting married. Or, and by the way, if cohabitation before marriage leads to 13% more likely on top of already 50% likelihood of being divorced, cohabitating before marriage leads to a 13% more likely chance that you'll end up getting divorced. And so that's not the plan. It isn't that we would just play marriage and play house and, and, and kind of act like we love each other. Even though we might love each other, it, but you're, you're just, really, you're just playing marriage. And it, stats just show that doesn't work either. Marriage isn't a contract. It's a covenant between one man, one woman that's meant to last a lifetime. And marriage has distinct roles for you and I to play. See, from the very beginning, God, in his creation, God has created us to have roles. And when we say that, it, in our culture, in our country, it, it doesn't sit really well. Because what we feel like is we feel like somebody has to be lesser than somebody else in that moment. But the Bible elevates both men and women to be equal with each other. And even though there's different roles to play, they are completely equal. And the way Ephesians 5 starts out, and it starts out talking about women. So, and then it goes, after talking about wives and women, it goes on to talk about husbands. And it starts out like this, and it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So as it says subject, it just means submit. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So like all of us in this room that are a follower of Jesus, we've humbled ourselves and under the authority of God and we're obedient to the Lord. Hey, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And it doesn't say all men, it says your husband. And there is a, as we think through that, it doesn't mean lower status, it doesn't mean less important. In fact, if you think through the life of Jesus, what does Jesus do at the end of his life? Right before he goes to the cross, he says, not my will, but yours be done. He's, he's, there's a different role. Jesus as the son is playing and he's submitting, humbling himself under the authority of the, the father and going, I'm, I'm submitting to your will. Philippians 2.8 says this. 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're equal, but they play different roles. Husband and wife, completely equal, but play different roles. Submission for a wife is an invitation to her husband to lead. Because the husband, Ephesians 5, 23, says, for the husband is the head of the wife. That doesn't mean dictator. That doesn't mean boss. But, and it goes on. It says, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being at the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands, to their husbands in everything. So it's not saying it just once. It's repeating it. Because it knows exactly how we are that we try to go, okay, does it really mean what it's saying it does? It's saying, and the truth is, it's, it means what it's saying, right? Wives, submit is just an invitation to your husband to lead because the truth is about your husband is that he will lead somewhere. And the reason he might and you feel like there's conflict in your marriage is because he might be leading really, really well at work, but not really well at home. And the reason he might be leading really, really well at work is because at work, he is celebrated, right? If he's, especially if he's a hard worker, he goes to work and he is celebrated. Eventually, some point, they're gonna sit him down and they're gonna do a review with your husband, right? And they're gonna tell him, like a good boss would, they're going to tell him the 50 things he does really, really well. And in the middle, they're going to package it with the one thing that he needs to work on to improve. But they're going to try to tell him in that 50 things, if he does really well, they're going to try to make it sure that he feels celebrated, that he feels honored, that he feels essential to the business, the organization. And, and even to prove that a little bit further, they give him a raise. And he feels honored, and then he goes out, and he does the one little thing. Right? Because he wants to come back, and he wants to feel celebrated even more. Here's the truth about your husband. Men are pretty simple. Women, they're a little bit more complicated. Um, men are really simple. They're like puppies. We're all like puppies, Get this, we repeat what we're rewarded for. And so, ladies, a way to kind of invite your husband to take the lead by simply laying down the reins of your family, your home, your marriage, down on the ground, is you convince your husband he has what it takes to pick up the reins and lead your family, your home, your marriage. You celebrate him. You celebrate all the things that he does do for your family, for your marriage, for your home. You find the things that he does right and you celebrate those. And guess what? He's gonna probably repeat those. And then you can package that 
with the, hey, you do all these great things. Here's the one thing. And guess what? As we celebrate him, as we cheer him on, as we submit to his leadership, the likelihood is he's going to lead because that's the way God's designed it. That's the role he designed you to play. You want your marriage to thrive? You want it to be better? Play the role that you've been given. Husbands, we've been given a role as well. In our role, our culture tries to either say, hey, we should be domineering, which is wrong, because we aren't the boss, we aren't the head. We are, as the head, we aren't the boss, we aren't the dictator over our marriage. So anytime we're saying, hey, to our wife, hey, submit to us, because that's what it says in Ephesians 5, we're in the wrong. But it also, our culture tries to make us passive, which is also not what God's intended our role to be. It says in Ephesians 5.25, it says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives. This is where in the first century, as they're listening to this, they were not really good with it. Like they were good with the wives submit part, but they are going, husbands, love your wives. Like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Because in the first century, women were looked at as second-class citizens. Like you could just divorce her for any reason. If she burnt dinner, it was grounds. Because they were lower status. The Bible elevates women to equal with men and says, hey, husbands, guess what? Love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So guess what, husbands, we're called to do is give ourselves up for our wife. Love her like Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? Well, he loved the church by pursuing us initiating with us. Think about the parable of the the 99, Jesus leaving the 99 sheep and leaving them to go pursue the one lost. He initiates that. He, he, He doesn't ask us to clean up our lives before we could come to know him. He initiates while we were still sinners, he died for us. It was a sacrificial kind of love Jesus demonstrated that men are called to have towards their wives. It's a, Jesus described as the, the suffering servant. So husbands, be the suffering servant and serve your wife. Leader, not just by making decisions, but leaders spiritually. This is what it says next in the next two verses. It says, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We're called to lead her Love her by leading her. And most, one of the most important ways you can lead your wife is spiritually. 
the, one of the best ways you can be the head of your, your marriage is lead her spiritually. Have a conversation about God with your wife. So you don't, you're like, how do I even do that? Where do I begin with that? Hey, just jot down something that you're learning in a sermon on a Sunday in the middle of the week. Pull out your phone in your notes section that you jotted that down so you remembered it and you just go, hey, babe, what do you think about this? When, you, when we heard this on Sunday, what do you think about it? Now you're having a conversation with your wife about God or, man, you're, you're sp- hopefully spending time in the word yourself, right? Because uh, one of the best ways you can lead someone spiritually is that you're growing spiritually, and so hopefully you're spending time in the word because the word is sharp and it's active. It's a two-edged sword, able to pierce the deepest parts of who we are, able to shape us and mold us, who God is calling us to be. So hopefully you're spending time in the word. And so you can spend time in the word in the morning and then in the afternoon you go, hey, you know what I read this morning? I read this. What do you think? And now you are in this conversation about God with your wife. You're leading her spiritually. You can do this today. You can also lead her spiritually by praying for her. And I mean like going to your wife today before the Browns play and hopefully they lose to the Broncos. Go Broncos. Sorry, all you guys. Uh, I just made enemies. Um, Broncos stink. You guys are fine. You don't have a quarterback, so... Never mind. All right. We don't either. All right. Um, go to your wife today before the Browns lose to the Broncos. Um, and uh, ask her, hey, can, can I pray for you? And, and she's going to hopefully say yes, because ladies say yes back, because he's doing something right, right? So celebrate him in that moment and go, yes. And don't hit him and go, you're just doing this because you were told to do this. He's doing it. He's trying to do and trying to lead. So as he does this, he, you go, yes. And then he's going to respond back and go, hey, what can I pray for you about? And then all you got to do is, gentlemen, you just sit in there and listen because she's going to talk, Right? And she talks, and you just pay attention. You have your ears on, and you're listening. And, and this gives you excuse to watch the whole Browns lose to the Broncos game. Um, but you, you pay attention. You listen in. And, and as you're listening, after she's done talking, you go, okay, I got it. Let's pray. And then you go, dear God. And then you just repeat everything she just said. And then at the very end, you just say, in Jesus' name, Amen. Now you got it. Now you've been praying. You're praying for her spirit. You're praying for her. You're leading her spiritually. You're doing your job leading her. But then you don't just do that. You also pursue her. You don't just lead. You lead by the pursuit. Look at what Paul, Paul goes next in the next two verses. He says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. You know what we were really good at before we were married and when we were single, ready to mingle? Men, we were really good at taking care of ourselves, right? Like it was easy, because it was only us. And then she came along and ruined all that. Because she was pretty, and she smelled good, and she looked good, all of a sudden we start pursuing her. She was completely out of our league, and the way we won her over is in the pursuit of her, right? 
We pursued her so well that we convinced her we liked Hallmark. We didn't. And as we pursued her, we paid for her meals. We did all this stuff, which was us taking the lead, like God's intended. And as we led, as we intended, and we got down on a knee, like it was easier to get on a knee probably for some of us, this is the way it was for me, than to ask my wife now to be my girlfriend then. It was way harder to have that conversation than it was to get down on a knee. It was, I was more confident at that point that she would say yes than going on a date, right? And it's because I pursued her. Because when my pursuit of her, what she felt was she felt valued, she felt cherished, she felt loved, she felt like, hey, somebody is giving up their wants, their desires for mine, and you won her over. And the reason you could have struggles in your marriage is because we got lazy in the pursuit of her. We stopped dating her. We stopped knowing her. And you're like, it's complicated. We, but here's the thing. We know how to, we're good at doing what we think is worth value. Like we can change the oil in the car and we could skin a deer. You can know your wife. I was thinking about this week. When people change their status on Facebook to married, and then I'm looking at the, thinking about, hey, remember there was a time where, and I, I haven't seen this in a while, maybe you see it still, I just haven't, um, where you could change the status on Facebook to in a relationship, but it's complicated. Like, what does that mean? Okay. But, like, what if we just, what if we were like, we kind of treat marriage like that, right? Like, we're in married but it's complicated. But here's the problem with that. I'm not saying it's not easy or not work. We all understand marriage, not easy, not work. And when we hear somebody go, marriage is easy, we're like, you have no clue. Marriage is not easy. It's a lot of work. But God gives us instructions. He gave us the design to follow. All we have to do is follow it. Two non-believers could follow these instructions of the roles of marriage, and they could—they not just could, but they will have a better marriage. But there is something deeper that Paul is trying to get to in Ephesians 5 that he also wants us to understand, and he goes there next in Ephesians 5, verse 30. He says, because we, you and I, we are members of his body. We are part of the church. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting out of Genesis 2. And then he goes, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. See, God's design for marriage is that it would showcase the Savior. See, as we play our roles that we've been given, it showcases Jesus. Like, and, and so you might be here in the room and you're going, 
I'm married to somebody that's not a believer. It's all the more reason why you play the role that you've been given. Because as you play the role that you've been given, you showcase Jesus to your spouse. And as a two believers showcase the roles that they have been designed and they have been given, they showcase the Savior to the world. What an incredible thing that is. But understand, there's something even deeper that Paul is trying to help us understand. See, in the first century, when a guy was ready to get married... He would be living at his dad's house and he would leave his dad's house and he would go into town to find a wife that would be suitable for him to marry. And he would go in town, he would finally find the, the one. After out of all the ladies in town, he would pick her. He would choose her because that's what marriage is, is. It is choosing the other person. It's, it's a covenant, not a contract. It's not about feelings, it's the choice, I chose her. And he would choose her and then he would go and pursue her by going to her dad and asking for her hand in marriage. And then he would pay the dowry. He would be in, in that pursuit, taking the lead. And then he would, they would be in a sense engaged at that point and he would go home to his dad's house and he would start working on a project there and he would start building the future residence of their, for, their, for the couple, for, them, for themselves. And he would start building and as he's doing those preparations for their marriage, for them, their wedding day, for them to have a place to go, he would be preparing and his future wife his fiance, she would also be preparing. At the, from the moment he paid the dowry and left, she doesn't know because they don't have texting. She doesn't know when he's going to finish the project of the house. So she's preparing. She gets, her groom, he, she gets her bridesmaids together and they start to create and create the wedding dress. And they would prepare, get ready for the day that he would come back and take her. And then that day would happen. He was done with the project. And he would leave his house and he would go into town with his groomsmen and they would be playing trumpets. They would be making noise like a parade going to town saying, hey, the groom is coming for the bride. The groom is coming for the bride. He's coming into town to pursue her, to marry her. He's chosen her. He would get there, and they would become one, and, and they would become married in that moment. And he would go, they would leave and go back to their, the, the wedding chambers that he's been working so hard to create. And he, they would be in the wedding chambers for seven days doing what married people do. And then for seven days outside, get this, for seven days outside, there was a big old party for their family and friends. That tradition, I'm so glad that is done. That is weird. And then after seven days, the groom would come out, out of the house with his bride, and he would introduce for the first time his wife to everyone that was at the party. And then they would celebrate together. 
Why is that important? Because Jesus is described as the groom and the church is described as the bride. This is the mystery that Paul is talking about. That Jesus in John 14 said, hey, my, my father has a house and he's got many rooms and I gotta leave and I gotta go there and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And our job as the church is to be in preparation, preparing for the day that Jesus is returning to take us home. We don't know when that's gonna be, but it's all the more reason in our marriage, in our life, that we, we showcase the Savior. Because he has initiated with us, he has pursued us, he is willing to forgive us of all of our sin and give us new life in him, life that is promise of eternal life with him because there's described in, in Revelation a marriage feast that is to come, a wedding ceremony that is gonna come in the future and that wedding is meant to last eternity between Jesus and the church. It's a promise, it's guaranteed and it's why when we come to the topic of marriage today, it's why it's so important for us to play the roles and not change God's design on marriage because we aren't the designer. We're the creation that has been created to worship the creator. So it doesn't matter what role we think we should play because he's designed us to play a specific role. He designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. He's designed marriage to last a lifetime to, for you to be faithful, to take your vow serious. And no matter how difficult your marriage might seem right now, guess what? And it might feel like your marriage is dead, but we serve a God who brings things that were dead back to life, right? Paul ends this section about marriage and he says, nevertheless, each individual among you also, also, also is to love his own wife even as himself. Love your wife even as yourself. Pursue her, lead her. Cherish her, make her feel again like the most valuable part of your life under Jesus over your kids, over the rest of your family. Make her feel cherished, men. And ladies, it says, wives must see to it that she respects her husband. He switches from submit to respect because what your husband wants more than anything isn't love but is to feel respected from his wife that he chose that he pursued. And as you respect him, he will lead you. Marriage is that showcase of the Savior. Play the roles that we have been designed by him to play. He's the designer. He gets to be the definer. You guys would stand with me. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you today. And I, God, I pray right now just for every marriage in this room, God, that it would showcase, like you've designed it to, it, you, it would showcase you to this world. It would showcase to each other, the spouses in the room, it would showcase more of you when the husband plays the role that he's been given, that as he leads his wife, God, I pray that she would become closer to you because of that. And Lord, as she submits to his authority and his as he is loving her and cherishing her, as she submits and respects her husband, as the husband learns more what it looks like for that you, Jesus, died for us, that you love us despite of us. And God, I pray again, that you would be working, you'd be in the middle of every marriage in this room. Well, God, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, ultimately, for the death and resurrection of your son. Lord, because of that, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.